0: We wanted to start these times with kind of a Q&A about anything that we've, we, I guess would mean me, um, has preached in the last couple of sermons. So if anyone has any questions about Matthew, and uh, really, I don't know where we're, any I guess anything up to what we've covered so far, you are now free to ask that question. And while you think about a question... Somebody asked me a great question that I haven't explicitly answered, but go ahead, if you've got your Bible, go to Matthew 5.20. Matthew 5.20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, somebody asked me, or, or maybe even just kind of told me that it seems like I'm, when I'm talking about that righteousness there, I'm not, I haven't been talking about the imputed righteousness. I've been talking about what I'm going to just call practical righteousness. Does, so, does anybody know what I mean when I say imputed righteousness? Somebody, somebody give me a, what is imputed righteousness? the the righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith great that's that is imputed righteousness so if you well you don't have to turn there but if you did turn to 2 Corinthians 5:21 it says for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him so god made christ sin he treated christ as though he had sinned as though he was a sinner So that we might have the righteousness of Christ applied to us and, and so that we would be counted righteousness, so that we would be counted righteous. That's imputed righteousness and we need that righteousness in order to stand before God, right? We, we can't stand before God on our own righteousness. Our own righteousness, Isaiah 64, 6 is like filthy, like filthy rags, right? So, But, so as true as that is, that we need Christ's righteousness, that is not what Matthew is talking about in Matthew 5.20. The righteousness that he's talking about there, and which the rest of this sermon kind of lays out, is actually practical righteousness, holiness, lived out in our day-to-day lives in things like not being angry in our heart, not lusting after somebody, and we're going to see even... In, into everything in our finances and everything as we go through the really the rest of this sermon. It's going to lay out that practical day-by-day kind of righteousness that we're supposed to live. And that's what Matthew's talking about in Matthew 5.20. Now, it, again, it's true that we need a, a righteousness. We need the God-righteousness in order to stand before God. But that's not what Matthew's talking about right here. Any questions about follow up questions on that. I don't I don't think I explicitly ever said that, but I've I've been teaching it that way and every single commentary I have agrees with that except James Mon- Montgomery Boyce who said he once taught the imputed righteousness view and then he had to correct it himself in his in his newer commentary and so he corre- he made a correction of his former self and and uh went right there. So any other, any questions about that? All that great? Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. so Matthew's saying the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness wasn't all that great. And as we've been kind of preaching through it, we've seen already two times in 21 to 26 and 27 to 30 that, they had this view of righteousness that it was only an external thing. As long as they didn't commit murder, they were they were good. It was fine to be angry with people, call them names, but as long as you didn't murder, you were righteous. Or, you know, you could even divorce someone and marry somebody else because of the lust that was in your heart, but they didn't view that as sinful unless they committed actual adultery with another person. So, and we'll we'll kind of see that as we go through the rest of those verses, yeah. So the the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, although the the world around them would have thought a very astute, very very good righteousness, Matthew saying that's not good at all. You need a righteousness higher than them, and it's really the righteousness of of the heart that Matthew wants us to have, and that Jesus wants us to have. Great. Any other questions about anything from Matthew chapter one all the way to Matthew chapter five verse thirty? That's great. All right, well let's uh, let's get into it then. Today we're we're kind of on part two of Scripture. Uh, we have I, call, I called this section the sufficiency of Scripture last time. We looked at at two aspects of Scripture, and this time I hope to look at four other aspects of Scripture. But last time, we began to look just at the doctrine of Scripture, and we saw a few things about it. We saw, first of all, that Scripture is revelation. Uh, What does revelation mean? What does it mean that Scripture is Revelation. That it reveals something? Yeah, good. Yeah, Scripture reveals. Um what does Scripture reveal? I guess lots of things, I guess we could say, right? Scripture is is God communicating to us so that with the intent to teach us about certain things, right? The world, about Himself, about salvation. Uh, and really everything that scripture tells us. So in scripture, God is revealing himself to us. And then we saw, secondly, that scripture is inspiration. And does anybody remember what, what verse we looked at? That was about a month ago. What, what verse did we look at in particular that talks about inspiration? Where would you go to show that Scripture is inspired by God? Yes, yeah, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Let's go ahead and and look at that. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, does anybody else have a different version than the ESV here tonight? Put up your hand if you have a different version than the ESV. Okay, one, two, what do you, what do you guys have? New King James, what does that say there? Okay. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Did I get that right? All, all scripture, K, K, KJV, New King James. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Anyone else have something else besides that? No? Okay. So, um, I think the, the New American Standard, if I remember right, says all scripture is inspired by God. But we, we looked at that word inspired or breathed out and that was, a compound word theopneusos theos is god pneuma is is wind breath spirit and so all scripture is the esv really gets it really nicely is breathed out by god so scripture isn't breathed into but it is breathed out by god and and so we got this definition from bb warfield he says inspiration is a supernatural Influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. So God is, is exerting a supernatural influence on the writers of scripture so that what they write is literally from God, right? It's, it's breathed out by Him. It's the, the source of scripture is God Himself. Uh, Another definition of inspiration, it was from Norm Geisler, William Nix, in their little book, A General Introduction to the Bible. It's, quote, Inspiration is that mysterious process by which the divine causality, and what they mean by that is just God. So, inspiration is the mysterious process by which God worked through the human prophets without destroying their individual personalities and styles, to produce divinely authoritative and inerrant writings, so God is working through the human people. He doesn't destroy their personality. He doesn't destroy their vocabulary. He doesn't destroy their their particular style of writing. But what comes out is divinely and authoritative and inerrant. And we'll get to what inerrant means in a little bit. So that's that's inspiration. Now I can't remember if we got to this or not but i want you to go to another passage second peter chapter 1 so second peter chapter 1 <clears throat> Second Peter, Peter's writing really a, a letter to these people who have been influenced and are being influenced by false teachers, and he wants to point them to the word of God that's gonna help them to kind of discern the, the truth and error of what's, of what's happening in their day. And in verse 16, he says, he's kind of defending his apostleship and, and the scriptures themselves, and he says this, he says, for we did not follow does anybody know what Peter's talking about here at this time? When did Peter hear a voice from the majestic glory when he was on the mountain? Yeah, during the transfiguration. Great, thank you. So the transfiguration is, is what he's talking about there. And so he's saying, hey, I, I, didn't, I didn't make this stuff up. I was there. We, we were there. And we heard this voice from heaven, the, the word of God, if you want to say it that way. We heard the word of God speaking out of heaven, pointing us to Christ saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We also saw, you know, his, his clothes made as white. I think Mark says something like whiter than any launderer could make them. And, uh, and so that's on the mount of transfiguration. But then look what Peter says right after that. He says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay heed or to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes to From someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 19 is a a really key verse for us. What, what is, does, what are some of the other translations that you have there on that one? We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Somebody want to just read that first little clause in another translation? You guys are all just such good ESV people. That's great. So we have the prophetic word confirmed. We have the prophetic word confirmed. Um, I think the New American Standard, I'm going to have to start bringing my New American Standard if I'm going to keep quoting from it. I think it says, we have the more sure prophetic word. But there's a, a word there that, that's a comparative word. And it's talking about the prophetic word. And, and that word that, that's, that's talking about the prophetic word that's translated, at least in the ESV, more fully confirmed. That's a, a word that means firm or permanent. It's, it's something that's generally relates to stability. And the, the idea of that word is that it's something that can be relied on and that, that won't cause disappointment. Or something that's reliable, and so it's actually used in Hebrews six nineteen of an anchor that that kind of keeps the boat secure, and and the idea then of this word or what Peter's saying when he says and we have the prophetic word, you know, made stable or or, or confirmed or some something that it can be relied upon. The the idea there is that that he's making a comparison between the prophetic word and the spiritual experience that he had on the mountain. Okay. So, so there's this comparison going on between the experience that he had on the mountain and the, this prophetic word. And the, 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 the comparison is that, that the, the word is more sure. It's more permanent. It's more reliable, right? you kind of, can you see that? So what Peter's telling us is that, that the prophetic word, another translation from the, what's called the net Bible translates it this way. The prophetic word we have as an altogether reliable thing. And you do well to pay attention to this. So Peter's comparing his experience with the word, and there, there is some debate on exactly how this comparison works, but the idea here is that there's, that the Word of God is more certain, more reliable than His experience. Or, at the very least, the Word of God is, is elevated. It's, it's very certain or altogether certain in comparison with His experience. Is that, are you guys following that? So, you know, you think about Peter on the mountain. So what, you know, let me ask you it this way. What would you rather have? Would you rather see Jesus on the mountain, transfigured before you and hear a voice from heaven? Or would you rather have this? And Peter's saying to us, because of the nature of prophecy, this is the more sure thing. Does that make sense? This is the more sure thing. And so Peter's saying, hey, you know, I had this experience. I'm not making this up. But you have the, the even better thing, the word of God. And so that's really, really important as we think about Scripture. Now, verse 20, look at verse 20 again. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from anyone's own, from, from someone someone's own interpretation. So Peter's saying there that Scripture, the, the prophecy of Scripture, the, the way that Scripture is created, it doesn't come from somebody's own from from the author's own wishes. It doesn't come from somebody's own desires. It comes from, like we already saw, it comes from God. And then he explains that further in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, prophecy, Scripture, didn't come from men's will, it came because the Holy Spirit was doing something. And what the Holy Spirit was doing there is he was carrying along these men that came from God, right? So so God raised up these men and prepared everything about their life. And then the Holy Spirit came and and carried them along. Or the, that word just means to, to bear or to carry. It's a, a very common word to, to kind of carry any kind of a thing. And and so what we see then again is that this isn't some kind of dictation thing that happens that right this these these men themselves spoke but the way that they spoke was such that it that what they spoke came from God and there's a bit of a mystery in how this works we, we this is the this is the most that scripture ever tells us about how scripture was produced the holy spirit carried men along and what they wrote was both human and divine, so that we can say that Moses wrote something or we can say that God wrote that same thing. And often that's actually interchanged in Scripture. Moses said, God said. Luke said, God said. Peter said, God said. It's because there's a, a human and a divine author, but what we what we see from both of these things is that, that it's breathed out by God or that it's carried along so what they spoke was from God. What we see is that the ultimate thing that Scripture depends on, or maybe I should say it this way: ultimately, Scripture is God's word, not men's word. It's ultimately God's word. John MacArthur commenting on Second Peter here says this: "Quote the Holy Spirit thus is the divine author and originator, the producer of the Scriptures." End quote the divine author and originator, the producer of the Scriptures. Now, if, which it is, or since, maybe I should say, since Scripture is God's Word, His breath, since it ultimately comes from Him, what would we expect to find about Scripture? I don't know if you can follow that question, but what, what would you expect if, if God was the author of something? Just, there's probably lots of things you could expect. Consistency. Yeah, God's not going to be kind of confused and say one thing over here and something else over there, like, like, a, like a politician would or something like that. There's going to be a level of consistency. We've been, I've, been, I've been watching too much Twitter politics in the States right now. Truthful. Yeah, truthful. Anything else? What else would we expect? The revelation of God Himself, yeah. Um, when you kind of back up from from truthful and the revelation and and even consistency, what what would what may, might you call that? Trustworthy inerrancy. Uh, uh, what I'm kind of just getting back is that at at at, at the basic level, if God wrote Scripture, it's going to have the characteristics of God, right? It's gonna it's gonna bear the divine imprint somehow. There's going to be something unique about Scripture versus every other writing in the world, because there's something pretty unique, as we saw two times ago, about the God who wrote it. So James White says this in his book called Scripture Alone. He says, quote, if the Scriptures originate in the very breath of Almighty God, that is, if their origin is intimately and essentially divine, then their nature cannot be any less than would be commensurate with their source. So he's saying that the nature of Scripture is going to is gonna be connected to the source of Scripture. There, there, there's going to be something about Scripture that's special because the source of Scripture is, is special. So then he says... Continuing, he says, while Theopneusos, that's inspired, that's that word that means God breathed, while Theopneusos does not speak first to nature, it does by logical extension. since we Since we know that the scriptures come from God as from his breath and that they are the creation of the spirit, we are compelled to certain conclusions about their nature right? So that makes sense. If if God wrote it, there's going to be certain things that are going to be true about the nature of scripture. And that's what we're going to kind of go into next. And we're going to handle these two things together. And those are inerrancy and infallibility. Now, just give me a hand. Who's heard of inerrancy before? Okay. Most everyone. What about infallibility? Have you heard that same word? Okay, great. Um, Great, inerrancy and infallibility. Really, those two things are very, very similar. Let me read here another quote. from This is from Norm Geisler and William Roach in a, a book called Defending Inerrancy. They say, quote, The inerrancy position is grounded in a deductive argument that is grounded in the essential nature of a perfect God who cannot communicate error. Christianity unlike the ancient philosophies recognized that it was the divine that it was of the divine nature or the, sorry Christianity unlike the ancient philosophies recognized that it was of the nature of the divine being to be perfect likeness is based on agreement or communication of form and if god is perfect then what he produces must be perfect thus When God breathed out the Word of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, then it too must be perfect. The concept of formal equivalency is what Warfield pointed to with the motto, As Scripture says, God says. And as God says, Scripture says. Or, as God is perfect, so the Scriptures are perfect. And as the Scriptures are perfect, so is God perfect. So that is kind of what we're doing here we're, we're jumping from the nature of God if he breathed it out then we can because of we know what God is like we can understand certain things about scripture. Now the the first one and really again these two things are tied together this is this is an errancy, and um what I want to do is give you a a syllogism for an errancy. it's kind of like a logical argument okay and it goes really simple. First thing we've already covered, Scripture is God's Word, right? Scripture is God's Word. Number two, God is a God of truth, right? God is a God of truth. He is incapable of error. Number three, God knows everything. He's omniscient. I'm going to come back over these things. He is omniscient. And so therefore, we can conclude That the scripture could never be an error, right? Do you kind of see the logical argument there? God, scripture is God's word. Number two, God is a God of truth, and and let's look at that. God is a a God of truth. Let's go to a couple of scriptures here. Let's go to uh, Deuteronomy thirty-two and verse four. This is a, a key verse as we studied the attributes of God that we we looked up often. I think we we mentioned it probably in the first one where we talked about a high view of God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The Rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness or you could translate that a God of truth. The New American Standard translates that the God of truth. Faithfulness and truth are really this, the same Hebrew word. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Or Psalm 31 and verse 5. Let's, let's go and let's look at that as well. Sorry, I, I think I said Psalm 32, but I meant to say Psalm 31 and verse 5. Uh, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God, or, or O Lord, God of truth, as the New American Standard translates that. O Lord, God of truth. Second Samuel 7.28 says something very similar. You are God, and your words are true. Or Jesus, in, in John 17, verse 17, says, Your word is truth, right? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So, God is a God of truth, and positively we see that, that He is true, and then therefore His words are truth. Now, stated negatively... God, Scripture tells us, is also a God who cannot lie. Where would you go to prove that God cannot lie? Anybody? Is that a a hard one? (laughs) Maybe it's harder than I think. (laughs) Hebrews. Okay, yeah. Hebrews 6, verse 1. That's perfect. Let's Let's go over there. Hebrews 6. You know what? It's not Hebrews 6.1. I think it's like Hebrews 6.18. Yeah. Okay. So I got that wrong in my notes here. Uh, Hebrews 6.18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So there's two unchangeable things that are given there. The first one in verse 17 is an oath and the second one is that it is impossible for God to lie. So there's something that's impossible for God to do. He cannot lie. Another place we could find that is in uh, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. In we Look at verse 2. "...in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began." which God who never lies, or the New American Standard Bible again, God who cannot lie. Uh, another place that we see that is Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So God is on the one hand true, God on the other hand can never lie, it's impossible for him to ever lie, and so we know then that what he speaks is going to be true, but there's one more thing that could happen that could kind of undermine this whole thing, and that would be if God truthfully spoke something, but he didn't know what he was talking about, right? If, If God was lacking some kind of knowledge, right, we can do that. We don't know something, and so we say something, but we didn't know... Certain events or something and so we could sometimes speak something that's not true because we just didn't know that that was going on, right? So I could say it's dark outside and, you know, for some weird reason that, I don't know, the sun came out or, I don't know, that's just, that's like the dumbest example of all time. But, you know, something, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but lack of knowledge could be a reason that somebody intends to speak the truth, but they don't actually do that, But that's not the case with God because Job 37.16 tells us that God is perfect in knowledge. Or um, 1 John 3.20 says that God knows all things. So there's no lack of knowledge that would kind of hinder God from ever speaking the truth. Wayne Grudem summarizes God's omniscience, God's all-knowingness like this. He says, quote, God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple eternal act. So, God is true. He cannot lie. He is the one who spoke the Word of God. Therefore, the Word of God can never err. God cannot err, and therefore what He speaks cannot err. So the the two aspects of God's nature show us that God cannot he cannot lie, and there 's nothing that he misunderstands or does not know, and therefore we can conclude that the scripture is incapable of error now when we talk about that and i and, 'm um, not sure how deep we want to go into that into this, but when we 're talking about the inerrancy of scripture we 're talking about the original manuscripts, right when Paul wrote. Corinthians, or when Paul wrote, um, Ephesians, or whatever, whatever book, you know, Moses wrote, when they originally wrote it on that original manuscript, that thing was without error. Now, obviously, if I go and I copy that thing, I'm capable of making an error in my copying. And, and we, we've even seen that throughout history. The, you know, there was the, the King James Bible. Have you heard about the King James Bible that was called the Wicked Bible? because they forgot to put, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, and so, you know, that's a pretty serious mistake in, in a Bible, right? And so things like that have happened in, in history, but the original manuscript said, thou shalt not commit adultery, not thou shalt commit adultery. And so um, we're talking about the original manuscripts, which we basically have because we have so many manuscripts that we can really go back and, and with almost 99.5% accuracy tell what that original word was. Because this manuscript might have, have been missing something, but all of these other manuscripts over here kind of tell us what was missing. And, and through what they call critical, um, help me out here, critical analysis. Uh, uh, does somebody know the right word that I'm looking for? Textual criticism. Through textual criticism, we can determine what the what the original would have most likely said, and, and in most cases, it's very, very simple and very, very obvious. And when it's not very, very simple and very, very obvious, it really makes almost no difference to our understanding of any kind of doctrine in the Christian faith. So. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about inerrant. When Paul originally wrote it, there were no errors when Moses wrote it. And really, the other part of this is what they call infallibility. And infallibility means that it's not even capable of leading us astray. So inerrancy means it's without error. There are no errors. Infallibility, technically and originally, just meant that it's not capable of leading us astray. It, there, there's no liability in that thing for it to fail. So the the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, Article Eleven, says this quote: "We affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters." that it addresses. So it doesn't lead us astray, but it's true and reliable in all the matters that it addresses. Now, you got to be careful since 1960 onwards, though, because some people who don't want to believe in inerrancy, that the scriptures are inerrant, they have, they kind of like to use this word infallible, and they actually mean of it less than it historically meant. And so that's kind of like a And what they say with the, with infallibility is that when they speak about infallibility, they mean that it's not quite inerrant, but you know, in things of faith and practice, it's, it's pretty good. And so you gotta be careful. If somebody doesn't affirm inerrancy, but they want to just talk about infallibility since 1960 onwards, you kind of gotta go, Oh, this person might not really believe what the scriptures say about themselves. So, infallibility, though, historically means that God's Word always accomplishes God's purposes. And inerrancy means that God's Word is without error. Uh, John Feinberg, oh, it's either John or Paul Feinberg, said this, quote, Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the Scriptures in their original autographs, that is, the original manuscripts, and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. So basically, Scripture is true in everything that it affirms, right? Everything that Scripture tells us that is true. It doesn't matter if it's about our faith or about how many Men there were in Israel at that time or any kind of thing like that. Scripture, when whatever it affirms is true, even when it records the words of Satan, which are lies, it records those lies truly without error, right? Exactly what he said. So any questions about inerrancy or infallibility? Well, either either it's super clear or you guys have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's okay. We're just going to, let's keep going. Um, inerrancy of Scripture again. This is Wayne Grudem says, quote, The inerrancy of Scripture means that the Scripture in their original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now, question for you guys then. If... The Bible is true, and if it's inerrant and infallible and inspired, and it's a revelation from God, what does that mean for us? Or maybe i say the same thing this way. How should the Bible function in our lives and in the lives of a local church? If it's all of those things, what do you think? what, What would you say to that? Authority. Great, that is the exact word that we were looking for. Thanks, Sean. So it should have authority, right? And and, and that really just kind of goes from this argument. If if the Bible is what God says, and if what God says is the Bible, then we could ask it this way: Does God have authority? Just answer that for my just to humor me. Does God have authority over this world and this creation? Yeah, right? He is, he is the authority because he's the creator and owner of everything that there is. And so, if he has spoken to us in the Bible, then the Bible must be the authority in our lives. I am not the authority in my life. If I want to live in a, in a godly way at all, right? I am not the authority in my life. God is the authority in my life. And so, the Bible is authoritative. Wayne Grudem says this. He says there's frequent claims in the Bible that all the words of Scripture are God's words. And so it's authoritative. He says we are... Um, now, do I, we have time for this? Hmm... I think we have time for this. Okay, so I just this is kind of a little bit of a, a a side rail here, but the way that we become convinced of the Bible's authority is by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures. Okay? It's it's by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures. Wayne Grudem says this. He says, quote, our ultimate conviction that the words of the Bible are God's words comes only when the Holy Spirit speaks in and through the words of the Bible to our hearts and gives us an inner assurance that these are the words of our Creator speaking to us. And the way to just kind of simply put this is to quote Jesus in John 10.27 where He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. So if you are one of Jesus' sheep, he says, you will hear his voice. Now, where are you going to hear that voice? It's not going to be some voice in your head. It's going to be a voice speaking through God's word in scripture. And the the sheep that that are his are going to hear that voice and they're going to know that it's God, their creator speaking to them, and they are going to come and follow him. Now, other types of evidence is useful, but it's not finally the convincing thing. So, um other evidences like the historical accuracy of the Bible or fulfilled prophecies or um you know the the way that the the scripture has been used to influence human history more than any other book ever the the fact that it's continued changing the lives of million individuals throughout history or the fact that through it people come to find salvation Or that there's a majestic, I'm quoting from Wayne Grudem here, that there's a a majestic beauty and profound depths of teaching unmatched by any other book. Or that it claims hundreds of times over to be God's Word. Those things are are maybe a little bit convincing and they kind of add some evidence to the whole thing. But ultimately, it's got to be God the Holy Spirit that convinces us that the Bible is God's Word and that therefore it has authority in our lives. In the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 1 article 5 they said this quote we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the holy scripture and the heavenliness of the matter the efficacy of the doctrine the, the how good the doctrine works the majesty of the style the consent of all the parts that's what elizabeth talked about the consistency of scripture right that that might be that might uh, kind of move us that might uh, give us some sense of, sense of evidence they go on they say the scope of the whole which is to give glory to god the full discovery of it that that it makes of on, of the only way of man's salvation the many other incomparable excellencies and in the entire perfection thereof our arguments whereby it does abundantly evident, evidence itself to be the Word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, they say, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof of the Scripture, the infallible truth and the divine authority of the Scripture, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts." Okay. Um, by and with the word in our hearts. Now, let me say next then, this is C in my notes, so we did A, B, C. The scriptures as an ultimate authority are self-attesting. So what, what we mean by that is if this is really God's word, right? If this is really God's word, then I can't go somewhere higher to prove that this is God's word, because if this is God's word, this is the ultimate authority, right? This is a, an ultimate authority. And so if I go somewhere else to prove that, that scripture is true, then what I'm doing is I'm saying that other thing, whatever that thing might be, is of a higher authority than scripture. So we can't appeal to something higher than scripture to prove that scripture is God's word. Because scripture, as the word of God, is an ultimate authority and there is no higher ground of appeal. Now, this is not quite a circular argument because whenever we're talking about the highest authority, you always have to approve a highest authority, an ultimate authority by that thing itself. The ultimate authorities always have to be self-attesting, if you're, if you're kind of with me there. And, and secondly, this isn't quite circular because the Holy Spirit is something outside of us that is working to open our eyes to the Scripture to recognize that God is speaking to us in and through the Scripture. So we're we're relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to kind of show us as we study Scripture that this is truly the Word of God. And that's what's going to ultimately convince us is when the Holy Spirit changes our lives through the Scripture. Now... I, I gotta say just one other thing about this, and, and this is different. How many of you have heard of the Mormons and that what they talk about their burning bosom? Do you guys ever have Mormons visit the area? Not so much. You know, where was I? I saw Mormons in, when we were, when we were in uh, Slave Lake, I, you can kind of recognize the Mormons because they've got their white shirt and their tie and their name tag always, right? They come here sometimes, yeah. The Mormons, if, if you ever talk to a Mormon, they'll say, you gotta read my book of Mormon, and they'll kind of quote Luke 24, where, where the disciples on the road to Emmaus had their hearts burnt within them, and they'll say, you read this book of Mormon, and it'll make your heart burn, and then you'll know that this is the Word of God too. And the difference between what they're trying to do, and what we're saying here, that the, that it's through the scripture that the Holy Spirit is working, is that They're really appealing to something outside of scripture to, which is their own feeling of a burning heart when they read it. Whereas we're saying that in the scriptures through, through the whole work of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes, we're going to see and understand that scripture is true. That's, that's, so do you see the difference there? We're not looking to something outside. We're not looking to read the scripture and have like a funny feeling which I, I love it. Phil Johnson, do you guys know who Phil Johnson is? He he once said, how do you know that's not just heartburn? You know, um, it could be, you know, you just had some heartburn and now you're going to follow this book. Well, it, it's through the scripture that we can see the nature of the holy God that wrote this book, and then we know it's, it's the word of God. So Wayne Grudem again says, quote, the Bible will commend itself as being persuasive. He says, "...if we are thinking rightly about the nature of reality, our perception of it and of ourselves and our perception of God, the trouble is that because of our sin, our perception and analysis of God and creation is faulty. Therefore, it requires the work of the Holy Spirit overcoming the effects of sin to enable us to be persuaded that the Bible is indeed the Word of God." and that the claims it makes for itself are true. And so we now have come to kind of make a full argument then that the Scriptures are authoritative and, and we know they're from God because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. And what that kind of leads us to then is this. Therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God right? Did you get that? This is really important. To disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disobey or disbelieve God. And so again, what God says is what Scripture says. And this is really so, so important. You know, we can kind of, I can say that, but we got to really get this in our hearts and in our minds. When we see Scripture say something We need to take that as the Word of God commanding us to do that thing or to believe that thing, right? Whatever Scripture teaches, we're to believe and obey and follow with all of our lives. So so turn with me then to 2 Thessalonians. This is one place where we kind of see this idea here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul recognizes here that he is an apostle and that what he is writing is Scripture. And so look at what he says in 2 Thessalonians 3.14. He says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And so Paul, as an apostle, as a, a writer of Scripture, he, he says, if, if somebody doesn't obey what I say in this letter, 2 Thessalonians, the, the, the church is to take note of that person and have nothing to do with them. And, and what we just want to see there is that Paul, as a writer of Scripture, expects us as Christians to obey the Scripture. And so... The scripture then functions as an authority in our lives. What it says, we are to obey. Now, when I preach then, right, when I, like, when I preach this morning, what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to show you what the scripture says, right? I, ho- I hope you can kind of see that as we've been going through. I'm not, I, like, I'm not trying to tell you what I think because like I why would you care what I think, right? I like sometimes I don't even really care what I think, right? It it's it just it doesn't really matter what I think or what what matters is what is God saying here. And so I'm trying to my best to show you what the passage that we're looking at says so that you can see what God says to you and so that then you can obey it or believe it or depending on if it's a command or a promise or um you know something that we're called to avoid or whatever whatever those i'm trying to think of that what is what do we what's that acronym do you remember that acronym for the different things that scripture does no sorry if it's a sin or a commandment or a... specs thank you very much specs so that's a maybe that's a helpful thing to to have in your mind if when when there's there's scripture there's there's often a a sin to be avoided or a promise to be believed, or an example to be followed, or a commandment that, that ought to be obeyed, or the last one I think is a stumbling block that ought to be avoided, which is very similar always in my mind to the sin in the first one, but um, do you remember the act, what the, how you learned specs? Okay, from John MacArthur, Kate. Okay. There's another one, too, but I, I forget what that one is. But th- that's, those are the kinds of things, right? We're looking for what is God saying in this particular passage. And whatever he says, we either believe it, follow it, obey it, do it, whatever, you know, whatever the, the thing is, we, we, we submit to it as our authority, no matter what that's going to cost us. So when I preach to you, I'm trying to just show you so that you can see it for yourself, so that you can go back to that passage and say, yeah, it says right here, and this is what it means, and therefore this is what I must do in my life. So I I don't, I don't have any authority to tell you guys what to do. And I, I just want you to always know that. I have, I do not tell you in any way, shape, or form what to do with your lives. But I do try to tell you what God says that you should do and make it clear so that you can follow that and obey it. Um, so I try, and then I, I very forcibly at times try to impress on you to, and, and, um, urge your conscience to obey that thing once I've shown you what the scripture says. And so that's what I'm doing when, when I'm preaching. You guys, you don't need my ideas. You need to know what God says. And God's word, was written always, every book, every part of it was written with a purpose or with multiple purposes. And so what we want to do as we study the scriptures, we want to understand what was this written for to the original audience that it was written to. And then we can go from there and say, okay, well, how does that apply to my life, right? I'm not, I'm not, uh, uh, an Israelite in Moses's day receiving the law, but There's certain things that are still applicable to my life as I look at what Moses wrote to those Israelites, right? Does that make sense? And so there, there's kind of four areas of application in scripture that we can, we can glean. The first one is sometimes scripture just tells us events, things that happened, and we hear about those things that happened and we worship God for what he has done in the world, in history. Then there's things in Scripture that teach us theology. They teach us about who God is and what He is like. And so we come to know Him through understanding what He's like in the world. That's applicable directly to our life. Then there's there's commandments in Scripture that expect a moral response. And so those commandments are things that I am to follow and do. And then the other thing that, that, the way that scripture applies is when, when we just understand what God is doing in the world, right? When we, when we understand God's plan and purpose in the world, then it helps us to apply that in our lives. And when whatever's going on in our world, we understand, well, we know what God is doing. God is building his church, right? God is, he, Christ is going to come again. And so those kinds of, those are kind of four areas of the application of scripture. And, and four areas that it functions as an authority in our life. So when we, when we see events that God has done, we worship Him for what He's done. When we see, um, when we see who He is, we worship Him and we know Him and our relationship with Him is developed. When He tells us to do certain things, we respond to the, His moral commandments. And then when we understand what He's doing in this world, that also is applicable in our lives. Now. That was, that was the inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, and authority of scripture. We got one more, and, uh, we wanna, we have time to get through that, and, and this is really very, very important as well for us, and this is called the sufficiency of scripture. Now, I want you to go back with me to 2 Timothy 3.16. Let's go back there. So 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So Paul there is saying all Scripture is profitable for, for all of these things. That is, like even the historical books, they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then verse 17, that... The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, looking at that verse, what is all Scripture profitable for? Somebody just read me what it's profitable for. For teaching, for reproof. Thanks, Peter. Keep going. You're doing great correction training and, training and righteousness thank you for that so scripture is profitable for those four things now what do those four things do look at look at it in your bible there what do those four things do according to verse 17 make us yeah complete and equipped for every good work to be complete means to be fitted for a particular function, right? So uh, it, it, the idea is that it, it makes us adequate, it makes us proficient, it makes us uh, capable, and to be equipped is very similar. It's, again, the idea there is to make something ready for service. So if we are complete, that means we're fitted for a function, and if we're equipped, we're ready to do a particular service, and the the thing for which we are being made complete and equipped for is for every good work. For every good work. Now, let me ask you a really easy question. How many good works does that apply to? All of them. Every one. Now, is there any good work... That is not covered under every good work. Isaac says no. Good. That's, you are right, right? You are, you are, there is no good work. So, there is not a single good work that God wants us to do, according to this scripture. There's not a single good work that God wants us to do for which scripture is incapable of preparing us for. There's not a single one. Or, to try to say that positively, it's good for every good work, right? Every single good work that God wants us to do, Scripture completes us and equips us to do that thing. Now, many Christians and churches really miss this point, maybe not in, in just the understanding, it's very simple, but when it comes to how they live their daily lives, they go outside of Scripture to figure out how to do good works instead of letting the Scripture conform them to Christ and uh, equip them. So, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, article 5, which is on, chapter One's on Scripture, says this, quote, We may be moved and induced. Oh, you know what? This is what I read before, but let me read it again here. He says, they say, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church, to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God, yet Notwithstanding our full persuasion comes, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and the divine authority of thereof is, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. That is not the right quote that I wanted to have right there. I am so sorry. Um. That is too bad. So, but the next one right after that, I think this is the right quote. They say this quote, Article 6 The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or the traditions of men. And we'll just end the quote there. So everything that we need, these guys are saying, everything that we need for for God's glory, for salvation, for faith, for life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, it either tells us exactly directly in Scripture how to do that thing, or... It can be deduced from Scripture through our kind of study of, of the principles and the things in Scripture. We can deduce, we can understand how we should respond to that certain particular thing. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. That Scripture is all we need and we don't need to go somewhere else. To get wisdom, to, to learn how to do every good work. We, all we really need is the scriptures themselves. Now, let me just ask a question, and there's lots of answers to this. If scripture is sufficient, what does that mean for a local church? What, what don't we need if scripture is sufficient? Anyone want to give us an idea what we don't need? Does that, does that question make sense? What are some examples of things we don't need if, if all we need is Scripture? We don't need, any, uh, we don't need any extra revelations. Yeah, that you know that's especially true in 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 some areas. You know, you're looking for a prophet or something to tell you something. Well, prophecy we believe has ceased, but we don't need a prophet to tell us if God's already told us exactly what we need for every good work, right? So we don't need some kind of a prophet to tell us something. We don't need an extra revelation. We don't need a dream or a vision or something like that. We've got scripture. What else would be an example of something we don't need? The Westminster Divines gave us a good one when they said the traditions of men, right? That's the traditions of men aren't necessarily, or I should just say it, really boldly, the traditions of men aren't going to equip us for every good work that God wants us to do because he's already given us what he actually wants us to have in the scripture. So the, the traditions of men are something that we don't need. What, what else maybe we don't we need? What about uh Ken's Ken's thinking hard? <laughs> what about um you know some, the way that that some churches operate, they have uh uh they have things like like smoke shows and balloon drops. Um I, I gold dust? I I just I just wrote down gimmicks. I don't I don't know. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to a guy in Edmonton and he had just come to our church for the, you know, for the first time and he said, wow, is it ever nice to worship with the lights on again? And, because they, they would always dim the lights because that would really, that would kind of get the, the feeling going, I guess, just right. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with having like a nice backdrop or something like that. There, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what is going to really save our souls, affect our lives, right? Um, so we don't need gimmicks. We don't need entertainment. Entertainment is a, is a huge one. The, you know, the, the world kind of draws people by entertaining them. Uh, I am just, like, I'm not entertaining anyways, but I, I can't, uh, like, I, I'm not trying to entertain you on Sunday morning. I'm, I'm trying to teach you God's Word and show you what it says. Yeah, if you know if you wanted an entertaining pastor, you got the wrong dude. You know, and and that's great because you don't need that, right? Um, So, so I'm I'm glad for that too. Um, We don't need emotional appeals, right? I'm not I'm not trying to do something to your emotions. I'm trying to do something to your mind, right? I'm not I'm not I don't need to stir your emotions on on Sunday morning. It's great if the Word of God captures your heart and your emotions are stirred. That's, that's great. You know, the, the Word of God should affect our emotions. When we think about how great God is and how awesome Jesus Christ is, something should probably stir in our hearts. But I'm not going for the emotions first of all. Um, other things that we don't need is is worldly wisdom. Uh, a lot of churches have are, are trying to, um, to, to draw people and, and make their church successful by implementing modern business practices and, and kind of going to the worldly philosophies and bringing those into the church so that they can, they can influence the church. We don't, we don't need that because scripture already tells us everything we need in order to, to build the church with Christ that he's building. And, and, and what we really need is we need God's word to conform us to Christ's likeness so that we're more like Christ so that we have a greater influence on people around us and, and understand the gospel and preach that message so that people get saved. That's, that's what we need, not, not worldly philosophies. And then with this, and, and maybe this gets even, I don't know, maybe more controversial, but, but it shouldn't be for us because every good work that a Christian needs to do is in scripture. One of the things that we don't need is secular psychology. The, the, the study of, of man in the psychological world, it comes from, uh, from an unbiblical view of man, right? They, they deny that men are sinful, and then they've kind of developed a theory of how to cure men of his problems. They don't even really know or define what man's problem is, which we're gonna cover this next time. Man's problem is ultimately sin. And so secular psychology is trying to deal with the, the fruit of men's lives by, um, by ignoring the actual root of man's problem, which is, is sin itself. And so we don't need secular psychology and we don't need what they call Christian counseling. Christian counseling sounds really good, right? Don't you want Christian counseling? But Christian counseling is, is secular psychology with a few Bible verses kind of added on top. We don't need that because what we really need again is, is God's Word, not God's Word taken out of context and, and really secular psychology with some Bible verses slapped on. Biblical counseling is, is the, the word that we use for real counseling that, that's from the Bible and, and fully based on the Bible. That's good. Because we're using the Bible to teach people how to live their lives in this world in a way that glorifies God. That's biblical counseling. So those are, are some of the examples of what we don't need. What, what we do need. Did you have something, Dwayne? Yeah. Mm. So, Dwayne knows a guy who says he doesn't need any man to teach him at all because he has the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. What, what I would say to that is, first of all, scripture teaches that there's people called teachers that are helpful to, to teach us God's word and that are gifted especially to do that. Um, I, I would also, I don't know if I'd be so bold to, you know, I'd want to have a nice conversation with your friend, but I I would, I might want to say that that's a very arrogant position to think that you're so gifted by the power of the Spirit that you can understand the Word better than everyone who ever went before you. Like there's, there's people who understood the Word better in throughout church history that now help us to learn the Word. And so there's gifted teachers that God has given to the church throughout the history of the church, and we wanna we wanna glean from those guys. Now they aren't our authority; Scripture is our authority, but they're gonna help us, and they're gonna be helpful guides for us to understand the Scripture. So most people with that kind of a view end up being way off in their own on all kinds of doctrines because because nobody's teaching them, and then they're they're too arrogant, um, I don't, you know, they, but that's a very arrogant thing to, to say, I don't need anybody else, especially when if you would study the scripture, you would see that there are these people called teachers that God has given to teach us. So um, yeah, that's a, I would say that's a dangerous position and and keep praying for your friend and let's, you know, um, maybe he'll watch this video and he, then he can come chat with me or something about that. That'd be great. Uh, I don't know, um, but yeah, that's that's that. Anything else? Any follow-ups on that? What that verse called, um, about yeah, in, somewhere in Proverbs it says in a multiple in a multitude of counselors there is wisdom. You know, Proverbs is a book. I just don't have the verses down on. I I wish I did, but you got it. One of those Bible search things. Um, so. Yeah, anything else? Any other follow-up on on that? we got seven minutes left. I've got a few more things that I want to say. But if there's... In a of that, in the story of Philip and the eunuch, yeah. Where, the of Isaiah, you how you? Yeah. But give us exactly what you said, we need yeah. 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 The, the, Lauren mentioned the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading Isaiah and Philip comes along and says, do you understand what you're reading? And he's like, how can I unless somebody tells me what's going on? And, you know, honestly, that's how I feel like when I read the book of Isaiah often too, right? There's, there's some areas in, in the scripture that are, are hard to understand. Now, one of the things we didn't cover about scripture is that, is what they call the perspicuity of scripture. That is that scripture is clear. Uh, Because God is trying to reveal to us in the scripture, right? He's, He's not trying to hide things from us. But because we don't know the history and because we, we, you know, we're thousands of years separated, because there's even some translation issues, sometimes scripture is not easy for us to understand, even though it's clear. Now, one of the ways that, you know, that it might help you to think about this is a calculus textbook can be really clear but it'd be a little bit hard to understand, right? And sometimes the Bible's like that. It is clear, and if we don't understand it, the the fault's probably our own, but we also need to understand that the writers of Scripture were very sophisticated, and they had a deep, deep knowledge of the Scripture, which I think we've seen a little bit in Matthew, as we kind of see, like, Matthew will give us one little verse, and he expects us to understand the whole context of the messianic seed line or the the whole context of a chapter in Hosea, which he just gives us one verse to kind of cue our mind to that that whole context of hosea eleven and and so we see things like that now matthew's clear, but it it takes a little bit of work to kind of dig down into the scripture and of course, when you 've got an infinite mind teaching you in the scripture, you kind of expect there to be a little a level of depth beyond what a what a you know a regular book would have. So with that, so those are some things we don't need. What do we need? We need God's word for every area of our lives. That's what we really need. We need God's word. We need to understand what God says about every area. Next, next week, when we come back on Sunday morning, we're going to start into a series on marriage because the next verse in Matthew says, uh, you have heard that it was said, Something about divorce, and then uh, you know I, I'm not going to turn to Matthew five, but and then and Jesus starts into divorce and remarriage. So we're going to go and we're going to look at what does, what does the scripture say about marriage? And we could you know we've looked at what does the scripture say about peacemaking? What is we need to understand what the Bible says about every area so that our lives can be conformed to God and to Jesus Christ. That's what we need. And so if if scripture is sufficient we can never say about it things like this, that it doesn't work. Or, you know, I think sometimes we hear things like that. Well, you know, I tried to do what God says, but it it didn't work. Well, no, we don't say that. If God is our authority, then we say, I'm going to do what God says, and I'm going to leave the results up to Him, right? I'm going to do it the way that God tells me to do it in his word. I'm going to live the way, you know, I'm going to let's just go back to marriage. As a husband, I'm going to love my wife as Christ loved the church as best as I possibly can. And I'm going to follow his commandment on that. And if it doesn't seem to work in my marriage, I'm just going to keep on doing that. Even if it doesn't work because I want to obey God, right? It doesn't Now Eventually, if you love your wife the way Christ loved the church, it's probably going to bless your marriage, right? Um, I think most of us could testify that as we've done that by God's grace, we have seen it bless our marriage. But even if it doesn't, we're going to obey God. And that goes for every area. It doesn't matter if it, if it works. If an all-wise God and an all-knowing God has authoritatively spoken to us in His Word, then we're going to obey that, we're going to believe that, and we're going to leave the results up to Him. And so as a local church, then our job in every ministry that we have, in every, even every relationship and fellowship thing that we have, our job is to communicate God's Word and leave the results up to Him. So, um, so we've seen then in this series so far, we've seen that we as a, a local church are committed to having a, a high view of God. And then that high view of God then means that we have a high view of God's Word and we're going to follow God's Word. Now, next time we do this on a Sunday night, we're going to come and we're going to look at, at man. And we're going to see what does the Bible say about man and man's problem and who man is. Um, because the church is made up of you know men and women, so um, the, the the next thing that we're going to look at then is what what I'm going to call a a proper view of man, a biblical view of man, and we'll we'll see how do we how are we called to minister to man according to the scripture. So yeah, thanks for being with us. I guess we should close all things in prayer. Let's do that, Father. We uh, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this amazing book the word of god that you have given us old and new testament 66 books thank you that you have spoken to us in it without error and infallibly that that you are the one speaking to us in it it's not it's not me speaking it's not uh something else speaking it's not just a book but you yourself are communicating to us through this word we pray lord that you, that we grace bible fellowship and we the people in this room would follow your word and obey your word and live your word that you might be glorified, that we might fulfill the purpose for which we're on this earth, that we're to glorify you. And so we, we pray that you would help us to do that by following your word. And we pray that you would, would root out of us and reveal to us wherever in our lives we're not relying on your word and we're not doing things according to your word so that we can follow you. Because we love you, Lord. You are our great and awesome God. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. In Jesus' name, amen.